So it's basically going to be. Oh, yeah, I guess it is three. Let the weak say I am strong. So that, but I, except for I won't sing at the start. So it'll be. and Bren carriers rumbled past the saluting base where General Line, British commander in Berlin, took the salute. The official hour of the British occupation took place in front of the German Victory Monument overlooking the Tiergarten in the Charlottenburgerstrasse. The Union Jack, carried throughout the 3,000-mile advance from El Alamein, flies in front of the memorial. Grenadier Guards, 11th Hussars, Devons and Canadians took part in the parade. Germany's gilded victory column was built after a previous war of aggression. A Dunkirk veteran unfurled the flag and in one more sense rounded off the war in Europe. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see so many people out there, and I know I see a few guests. I think because we're uh, doing our kind of commissioning and sending off of our trip to Cuba a little bit later on. So if you're here for that, special welcome to you. Thank you for, for being here. Thanks, Andrew, and, and thanks, worship team, for leading us so well in, in really entering into what Palm Sunday is in the church year. Now, it, it, is, it is kind of a weird occasion in the church year because we're, we're kind of still in Lent, uh, but yet we have this sort of celebration Sunday, but it's kind of a celebration, but it's also kind of weird. Uh, let's just set the stage with a video here, and then we'll, we'll go from there. 1945, a date the history books will remember. First into Berlin came the famous Desert Rats. British cars and Bren carriers rumbled past the saluting base, where General Line, British commander in Berlin, took the salute. The hour of the British occupation took place in front of the German Victory Monument overlooking the Tiergarten in the Charlottenburgerstrasse. The Union Jack, carried throughout the 3,000-mile advance from El Alamein, flies in front of the memorial. Grenadier Guards, 11th Hussars, Devons and Canadians took part in the parade. Germany's gilded victory column was built after a previous war of aggression. 
a Dunkirk veteran, unfurled the flag and in one more sense, rounded off the war in Europe. He mentioned Canada, yay. Um, history has been full of it's been full of these moments though right conquerors or or liberators and in some cases it can be a little hard to tell the difference Uh, occupying the enemy capital there's these are always occasions for big displays of pomp and military might Um, you know and and if you're the British Empire apparently guys in kilts with bagpipes because as you do And yet in our text today, we see Jesus doing something rather different. Huge crowds turn up, but it it kind of gets complicated. It's clearly an occasion for worship. They were out there to worship Jesus. And I think we have to understand that as as genuine in some very real sense. At, At the same time, it seems that some of what was going on on Palm Sunday was there were some misunderstandings happening as well. Nevertheless, despite whatever issues this crowd had, I think there are some important things that we can learn from the crowd that turned up that day about what worship is and what it means to worship our King. So if you would like to open your Bibles, I would invite you to do that to Luke chapter 19. And as we typically do, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of our sermon text. Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. Luke 19, beginning at 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to him, said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. Now, it's interesting, we call the day Palm Sunday. This, this passage in Luke didn't even, didn't even mention palms. Uh, actually, only one of the Gospels mentions palms, and one mentions leafy branches. They all mention the coats, but I guess Coat Sunday didn't catch on quite as well. Um, and I suppose maybe some of the mothers would be upset if we had the kids put their coats down on the ground and walk on them and stuff. That might, might not go so well. Uh, and, and here it says a colt, and other of uh, the Gospels call it a donkey, and we'll, we'll get into that in due course. But first of all, I would like to connect what's going on in that triumphal entry with the scripture that we read earlier, Psalm 118. You might have noticed that there were some connections there, the, the blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord in particular. 
But some of them aren't really obvious. And to be fair, I think some of the New Testament writers make connections to the Old Testament that would have been obvious to them, but may not be obvious to the way that we understand things. This particular psalm has no superscription. That is, if you flip back to Psalm 118 in your Old Testament, you might see that it has a heading, something like the steadfast love of the Lord. But unlike other psalms, there's no superscription that was part of the original Hebrew text that says, you know, a psalm of David or something along those lines. However, many of the themes and phrases in this psalm, they they do sound really quite Davidic. That refrain, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, is common in the Psalms. In the Psalms, it's actually not regularly attributed to David. However, the refrain does seem to originate with him, and it's recorded in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 34 and and onward, in King David's song of dedication, when the ark of God was brought up to Jerusalem, and David sang to the Lord this new song, and that was the refrain in it, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And we don't know the context of this psalm. As I said, there's no superscription there even to give us any hints. But it seems to speak of a time of of royal celebration following a season of, of uncertainty and even the possibility of death. Remember that thing where we were reading back and forth about the enemies coming in on every side and they surrounded him like a swarm of bees, but in the name of the Lord he cut them off or he cut them down? Perhaps the background involves David bringing the ark up to the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps it has to do with his return following the tragic episode of of Absalom's uprising and rebellion when David actually had to flee for his life outside the city and then once the rebellion was put down, he was able to enter the city again. In any case, we have a picture of the king approaching the city in this triumphal procession, this joyful celebration that's going on. And there seems to be, and I was so glad that we read it this way, there seems to be some kind of a call and response thing going on in this psalm between the king and his entourage who are coming up to the city or maybe the temple gates and the the priests and those who are keeping the gates. uh, They're calling back and forth to one another. This is the gate of the Lord that the righteous may enter. And so on. Also, we know that Psalm 118 is the last of the six Halal Psalms, which were recited on joyous national occasions. And and this would have been certainly fresh in people's minds as they're all on their way up to the holy city for Passover. They would have been reciting these Psalms as they made their way there. Interestingly enough, the, the original psalm just says, blessed is the one or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they take it that step further and really it illustrates the context uh, at the triumphal entry. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So this, this psalm is the background and it seems to have become really connected with the Davidic king. We'll get into that a little bit more as, as we get into the text. So you can just shift that to the back burner, along with whatever is still simmering there from the Allies occupying Berlin, and those can just simmer and and cook down a little bit, and we'll continue on into the text. Back in Luke 9, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, right near the end of that chapter. And here, in chapter 19, we have the conclusion of what's gone on for these last number of chapters. Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he sends some people on ahead to make his entry, to commandeer someone's animal. And this, this might seem pretty strange to us as, as Andrew was saying. 
it's a donkey. And remember that clip of, of Berlin being occupied, right? Where there's, there's tanks and, and armored car carriers coming in and you've got the rows and rows of soldiers marching in formation and everybody's saluting and they've got bagpipes and they're, you know, they're raising the flag and all of that stuff. In ancient times, you would have expected an Egyptian or Greek or Roman conqueror to, arri- to ride a stallion in, or maybe to show up in a, in a gilded war chariot to make his grand entrance, to say, you know, this, this city is mine now. So this seems kind of weird. However, to the people who were there that day, this was maybe far less weird than, than it would be to us. They knew what was going on. If you remember again, back to the Old Testament, the original descendant of King David was King Solomon, his heir. And if you remember right at the end there of, of 2 Samuel and, and into 1 Kings, there, there gets to be a bit of a, a disagreement about who is going to inherit the throne from his father, David. With Absalom gone, Adonijah was next in line for the throne, according to birth order and the, the strict rules of succession. But as was often the case in the Old Testament, it, it, the one God chose didn't go strictly according to who was born first. And it was supposed to be Solomon who was to take David's place. And the aging king made it clear that Solomon was to be king after him. And David's most trusted advisors, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, they went out to the Gihon spring and they anointed Solomon king there and they had him ride on King David's, not his war horse, but his mule, up from there into the city. And so the people that are gathered there, as Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem, they've got, they've got the connections going in their minds. This makes sense to them. Seems weird to us, because we expect, you know, tanks and soldiers and all that. They see what's going on, though. They see what's going on, and, and it's, it's their hopes and dreams coming true right before their very eyes. And Jesus is enacting it. This is it. This is their Messiah King. He's here. He's showed up. He's, he's here before their very eyes. David's true and, and greater successor has arrived. It's happening right here, right now. They get excited. Like I said, Palm Sunday is this, it's this super confusing day in the church year. This, it's kind of this bittersweet thing. Like we get excited and we have the kids wave their palm branches and we sing our Hosanna songs, but yet we know where this story is going, right? Jesus comes into town on Sunday but gets nailed up to a cross by Friday and we want to celebrate but we also know what's, what's coming next. It's kind of awkward. We don't know. The Bible doesn't specifically say it was the very same people that were calling Hosanna, that were calling crucify him a few days later. But we certainly do see that the mood in the city takes a remarkable turn in, in the course of just a few days. Have any of you ever seen those kind of alternate history things? Maybe on YouTube, there's, there's a number of kind of alternate history they make little mini documentaries and they'll pose questions like what if Germany was successful in the Schlieffen plan or what if the South won the American Civil War or what if the United States hadn't used the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. People do the same kind of thing here. You know, what if the groundswell had gotten a little bit bigger and the city had accepted Jesus? Or what if the, the chief priests and teachers of the law had a few more people in their ranks like Nicodemus who had wanted to stand up for Jesus? 
What if Pilate had stood his ground and not been a coward and not sent Jesus to be crucified? The truth is, we just don't know. Another question we might ask here is, is, is the crowd right or wrong in their, their adulation and adoration of Jesus as king? I think it's pretty common from our perspective to point out that these disciples were misguided or that they misunderstood what was going on. They didn't understand that the Messiah had to suffer. They were expecting an earthly deliverer from their political enemies. They were expecting that Jesus was going to crush Rome. They, they didn't understand that he was bringing spiritual deliverance from their sins. But here's the thing. They weren't, they weren't wrong either. Is Jesus or is Jesus not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I hope we would say, yes, he is. Will he or will he not subdue every power, heavenly and earthly, under him? Yes, he will. Will he not return someday in power and great glory to defeat his enemies and vindicate his people? Yes, he will. So the people of Jesus' day, yes, they missed things that had been in their scriptures all along. That Messiah would suffer. That deliverance wouldn't come all at once. That there was a spiritual as well as a political side to what deliverance would mean. But we can make the opposite and equal error if, if we just want Jesus only to be a spiritual or, or an interior savior and deliverer. Right? He's... You know, he's not just the ruler of my heart, the king of my heart, nice as that song is. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, the ruler of all things visible and invisible, is he not? And one day everyone, and we were singing about this, one day everyone will see that for what it is and they will bow, whether they do in this life or not. Given what these disciples knew from their history and their scriptures and what was going on around them, I actually think they did pretty well. They misunderstood some important things, but they perceived some very important things clearly as well. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's prophecy. He was the one anointed by God to redeem and save his people. He was the king greater than even David who was anointed to rule over God's people. And these are no small things. The crowds that day may have misunderstood some important things, but they got those things right. It was right that they should rejoice and praise and worship on this occasion. It was not just right. Jesus even said himself, it's necessary. If these disciples were to stop their praising and, and calling out and waving their branches and all the rest, Jesus said the stones would cry out and praise him. We see this at the end in that interesting little, little exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees knowing the scriptures as they do and knowing their history, they also see what's going on. But unlike the crowds who are excited about it, they're like, no, this, this is not good. We don't know. This is, this is blasphemy, perhaps. We've got to stop this. And so they tell Jesus, teacher, tell your disciples to keep it down, will you? I think it's interesting they address him as, as teacher here. 
I sometimes wonder if we had that font or that typeface for irony. Maybe the word teacher should be a little bit ironic there. I don't think they're calling him teacher because they actually agree with his teaching. They're, they're doing the very opposite throughout most of the gospel, like disagreeing with his teaching and trying to catch him out in what he says. I think in this instance, they're trying to remind him, all right, Jesus, you might be a teacher, but you're certainly not the Messiah. I think that's why they address him as teacher here. They're kind of trying to put him back into his place a little bit. They might not like him as a teacher, but that's at least better than than what they're proclaiming him to be, king and messiah. You know, so frequently throughout the Gospels, we saw Jesus unwilling to put himself forward in that way, reluctant to, to... be connected with spectacular stuff. When he performs miraculous cures, he'll tell people, like, go away, show yourself to the priest if you have to, to, to be declared clean, but don't, don't go spreading this around. Keep, keep this on the DL. And, and, and when his disciples discern that he's the Messiah, he's like, yeah, but don't tell anyone. Good answer, that's right, but don't tell anybody about that. And when the demons, when he casts out demons, and the demons say, you're the Christ, and they know who he is, he makes them be quiet. But now it's different. This is such an occasion for praise and worship and celebration that if people don't do that, it's so necessary that the stones would cry out and worship Jesus. Maybe Jesus is making a bit of a hyperbole here, but maybe he isn't either. In any case, I think it's pretty clear that not only is Jesus worthy of praise because he is God's king, it is also necessary that he be praised as such. It is necessary that he be praised. And to be honest, I think sometimes we, we take that for granted more than we should. As I've already said, I, I think we can be pretty hard on this crowd. Maybe because we see that they missed important aspects of who Jesus was. Maybe because we believe that some of these very same people turned against Jesus in just a few short days. But you know what? I think we're often far too hard on characters in the Bible and we're far too easy on ourselves because we look back on all this with 20-20 hindsight and if I was there, I wouldn't have been part of that crowd crying to crucify Jesus. Don't be so sure. With that in mind, I want to point out a few things that this crowd got right about worship on this day and maybe some things we could learn from that to know and to emulate. They actually recognized Jesus as king and were willing to proclaim it as such. Now, they may have reduced that primarily to earthly or political king, but as I said, I'm not sure our tendency to reduce Jesus to a spiritual king is that much better. Because by spiritual, it can become easy to just mean something like emotional or psychological or interior, and Jesus' kingship becomes pretty vague. More to do with our own just sense of well-being and Jesus' he kind of becomes more of an advisor than a king. If Jesus is king, then he rules, and we serve him, not the other way around. If, if that's the case, our worship must recognize Jesus as king, and that must actually mean king in all that that entails, if our worship is to, to be genuine. They actually went out and gathered and offered their praises. Now true, some of these people may have been fellow travelers. Everybody's on their way up to Jerusalem. 
But I'm sure everybody had things to do. They had meals to make. They had kids they wanted to look after. They had friends they hadn't seen for a while. All other things they could have been doing. But they set those things aside because what was before them in the man riding the donkey was more important. It was more important that they come together and gather to praise and worship Jesus and proclaim him king than anything else they could have been doing that day. A couple weeks back, we talked about solitude. That was likely a challenge to some of you, maybe many of you, particularly those who are more more, uh, extroverted. You know, you might say something in your mind like, I, I just, I can't stand being alone with my own thoughts like that. I, it's just not for me. And today I think this part is maybe a challenge for those of us who are more introverted and would prefer to say, I can worship just fine at home or out in nature or by myself with just me and God. But you know what? Our worship must set aside other things that we could be doing. And must actually come together with others to praise Jesus, if it's to be genuine. They were willing that their worship should cost them something. This is what I was kind of getting at earlier with the thing about the coats. All the Gospels mention that they put their garments down in front of Jesus for for him to ride over. And in a time and place where people didn't have walk-in closets filled with outfit after outfit after outfit, spreading your coat on the road, that was costly. The donkey might step on it. It might get ruined. And that's probably the only coat you have. They were willing to do that for Jesus. And it was costly. You know, don't think of the, don't think in our context of like raggedy old hoodie you wear out in the garden. Like think of your nicest suit. Or maybe some of you who are faculty members, think of that expensive, that robe that hangs behind your door that you wear one time a year that you had to spend a couple thousand dollars on buying. You know, throw that down in front of Jesus. Throw your best suit. Costly. Our worship must cost us something if it's to be genuine. They went out. They got excited. But it wasn't just for a spectacle, right? They saw beyond the spectacle. This wasn't, this wasn't Cleopatra's entrance into Rome. Do we have that somewhere? There's Liz. This was 10 minutes of film that nearly bankrupted 20th Century Fox to replicate the splendor of Cleopatra arriving in Rome, which probably never even happened like this anyhow. Um, 20th Century Fox, actually, the only reason they recovered after 1963, because they almost went bankrupt with this, the thing that saved them, do you know what movie saved 20th Century Fox? The Sound of Music in 1965. And I hear we're producing that this summer at Summer Stage. You might want to go check that out. Um, you see how I see how you guys see how smooth that was. Thank you. But this wasn't splendor and opulence and riding a giant sphinx pulled by hundreds of slaves. This was one man on a donkey with a few raggedy blue-collar working-class guys tagging along and people throwing their coats down on this dusty road. For those who were gathered there to worship Jesus that day, it wasn't about the spectacle or the lack thereof. It was about the meaning. The meaning, what this thing actually meant. It wasn't about what it looked like. It wasn't about being more impressive than the last parade they saw. They had probably seen lots of parades 
Everybody wanted Jerusalem. There was always somebody conquering Jerusalem, showing up with their military entourage to say that they were king and that they were in charge now. It wasn't how the, about how Jesus' procession measured up to their processions, about whether he came up with something cooler and one-upped the last military conqueror. It was about what this signified, that their king, their long-awaited Messiah, was making his entrance into their city, into, into world history. Our worship must be a response to meaning and God's revealed truth if it's to be genuine, not just a craving for spectacle or entertainment or emotional stimulation. So how do we practice this? Well, I think we can, we can probably already see how this, some of these points in particular fit in to our theme of this sermon series. And this is the, the final one in a lot of ways of what it means to be a living sacrifice. We'll kind of tie this up with, with a few final thoughts on Good Friday. But this is the last sort of full-length sermon in the series. Real and genuine worship of the Lord will cost us. It will always require that we set aside some things and that we prioritize worshiping the Lord over all the other things in our lives that we could be doing. Even things that are good, even things that are fine things, that are not wrong things. We just can't do all the good things that we have opportunity to do in our lives. And that we have to prioritize the worship of God over all those things, first and foremost. Genuine worship will also require that we focus on what God has revealed as truly important and worthy of our worship, more than focusing on what we happen to find exciting or stimulating or entertaining. But let's put this into really practical terms. That's what we need. There's one thing I've learned about how I'm wired, and and I suspect it's true for most of us, is that good intentions don't always translate into, you know, actual action, actual results. I think if most of us could even go from like a 10% follow-through ratio to 20 or 25, we could probably change the world. But I know that I'm not there yet. Many of us aren't. You know, last weekend, last Sunday, I challenged us to, in that sermon on persistence in prayer, pick somebody that that you feel you should pray for and, and commit to praying for that person daily until Easter for the next couple weeks. I suspect some of us were probably successful at that and and some of us are probably thinking, oh yeah, that thing about praying for those people. I know I I caught myself even this week going, did I I do that? Uh, I think, no, maybe not. Maybe I missed a little bit here. Um, I say this not to shame anyone because I kind of have to put myself in that group. But to remind us that we need to be pretty practical. We need to get quite granular and break this down into little concrete steps that are actually small enough things that we can kind of grab onto and be successful at. We need that more than we often are willing to admit. So here's a few things to consider as we move toward closing. And there's nothing new. This is just breaking down where we've already been to a little bit more practical terms. So resist that desire for spectacle. Sure, something really amazing every once in a while can be really powerful and a boost to our faith. 
And on this campus, you know, I might, I might think of something like Youthquake, where we have this huge thing, and there's lights and smoke, and who knows what else, and all these extra people show up, and it, it's really exciting, and it, it can be draining and invigorating in this kind of weird, paradoxical way at the same time. But we couldn't do that every Sunday. We, we can't live like that on, on a week-to-week basis. That desire for something spectacular and novel and that, that one-upmanship thing that starts to happen every time you come together, if that's what you want, it can quickly just turn into consumerism. You know, true worship is always more of a response to the meaning of what's happened and what is happening than it is a response to how it's packaged. Right? That, that, that can change from culture to culture, from generation to generation. But the meaning of it, right? that Christ Jesus came into the world, gave his life for our sins, rose again from our just, for our justification, is coming again, that never changes. That meaning, that reason for worship remains the same, regardless of how it gets packaged. And we saw that in our text today, and that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was relatively unspectacular. And nevertheless, the crowds recognized it for what it was and responded appropriately, albeit with perhaps some misunderstandings too. May we have eyes to see how Jesus is entering into our lives and respond appropriately in worship and praise. Don't look to worship as a form of entertainment. Second thing, just resist the desire to take a pass on worship. I was really struck this week, and this is a little, the little detail. One of the reasons I picked the Gospel of Luke for our sermon text today, of the four of them, I'll talk about Palm Sunday, is this, that little comment at the end between Jesus and the Pharisees about if the people didn't praise him, that the rocks would cry out. And we can say that's hyperbole or that it was just this specific situation only. But in any case, we can't escape from the fact that it is necessary that Jesus be worshipped. It's necessary. Not just something to do when and if we feel like it, when and if we're well hydrated and well rested and well adjusted and not feeling anxious about anything and literally have nothing else on our list, have crossed everything off the to-do list. Okay, now I guess I've got nothing else that's vying for my attention. I'll go get together with other believers and worship. I know, some of us just, we don't get as naturally excited. We're maybe not as expressive of people. We're maybe more introverted, whatever. We don't get as excited about gathering for worship the way some people do. And we might be tempted to think, like I said earlier, I can worship in my own house, just me and God. The Holy Spirit's present with me everywhere. I can worship in my car, out in nature. It's 100% likely that you can do that. Not going to lie. 100% likely that you could do that. Scripture encourages us to do that. Read the Psalms. Worshiping in the context of creation. It's a good thing. It's just that the Scripture never presents that as an alternative for coming together with the people of God and gathering for worship. You know, we don't read anywhere in, say, the Old Testament, well, if you don't feel like coming to the temple and bringing your sacrifice, it's okay if you don't. Just do whatever. It's necessary that Jesus be worshipped by his people. And the default mode for that in the scripture seems to be coming together 
to do so. There are many other things competing for our attention. As I said earlier, many of them are even good things. And gathering together for worship on a Sunday morning, it can be an easy thing to sacrifice. There's lots going on. It can be easy to convince ourselves, I'll go next Sunday. I don't miss church as often as so-and-so does. Whatever. But I urge you, don't sacrifice that. Rather, sacrifice for that. You might remember where we kind of began this series, and I know some of you haven't been here, your guests today, so I'll explain it a little bit. One of the things I talked about in one of our very first sermons in this Living Sacrifices series was that you can tell what's most important to people by the things that they're willing to sacrifice, that is, to, to forego, to lay down, to set aside, and the flip side, what they're willing to sacrifice for. Right, what they're hoping to, to gain, what they're willing to embrace in light of what they're setting aside. So don't take a pass on worship. Here's the thing. We may not see Jesus visibly moving through our midst the way those disciples did. Right? We had the kids. They came forward with their palm branches But there was no actual visible Jesus riding a donkey coming down to the front of our church. At least I certainly didn't see him. But remember the words of Jesus. Wherever two or three are gathered, there he is present with them. That's not just sentimentality. That's not just some kind of nice little metaphor that we carry Jesus, the memory of him, or, you know, in our hearts or something. He's present by the Holy Spirit. He's really and truly present by the Holy Spirit. Really and truly. When we gather to hear from God's word, he's present to us by his Holy Spirit, just as present as he was on that day when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. When we we gather around the Lord's table, he is present to us. When we gather together for prayer, when we sing his praises, he, he really is present to us, with us, among us. These aren't just nice things we say. He's present with us. And wherever Jesus is present, it's not just fitting, but it is necessary that we worship and we praise him and we honor and proclaim him as our king. Not just our king, as the king as the King of all things, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's not make the rocks do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we proclaim you today as King of kings and as Lord of lords. We we recognize that it's not just fitting and appropriate that you be praised, but it is necessary. We all know there are those occasions when we've maybe taken that for granted, when we've assumed there will be other opportunities to do so, uh, when we've sacrificed the opportunity to praise you in, in favor of other things. Lord, may we see more clearly the importance and even necessity of not sacrificing that, but sacrificing for that. 
of, of being willing to set those things aside which distract us from worshiping you as we should. And as, as we prepare to come before your table now, um, we pray that we would know afresh and anew your presence with us uh, today as we gather together for worship, as we gather around your table, and going forward into this week ahead, a week filled with, with a whole lot of things, with the graduation ceremonies and culminating in Good Friday and Easter. May we have eyes to see what it is that you're doing in our midst. May we have eyes to see what it means and respond appropriately as you would have us do. In your holy name, King Jesus. Amen.